Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1. We're going to start reading Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1. I'm going to read from Hebrews 5 verses 1 and t- one through 10. My intention is to take on verses 1 through 4 this morning, but this is one unit, and so I'll read it together. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we come before you, recognizing that this is your word, the word of the head of our church, our Lord Jesus Christ, superintended by the Holy Spirit as he carried men along in the writing of it, We ask that as we come to this word, we would understand what it is that the Spirit is saying to the church. Father, we recognize this letter was written to a particular church at a particular time, but it was written by your Spirit, ultimately, for the sake of your church in all ages. So we ask that he would open the eyes of our hearts, that he would illumine our minds, Increase our understanding so that we might grow in maturity in Christ. Ask that as we consider the old covenant priesthood that was appointed by you and why you gave it, that you would drive deeply into our hearts not only the reality of our sin, but how good you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, maybe you're not familiar with the Bible story or you don't know the Bible story that well. Um, And if you don't, then you may not know much about the Bible's constant emphasis on the need for a high priest and a sacrificial system. There's a pretty massive emphasis throughout the Bible for this need of two things. Man needs a high priest And man needs a sacrificial system or a sacrifice. So some of what I may say to you might be somewhat new to you or might be filling in some information that you don't yet have or or helping you understand some things you don't yet understand or maybe even creating a whole new set of questions for you that you will now need answered. I'm not sure. But my hope is to be of help to you this morning. Um, For those of you who are familiar with with the Bible's emphasis on priesthood and sacrifices, I wonder if you have thought sufficiently about the priesthood and sacrifices. Even if you have lots of information and you understand the Bible emphasizes this quite a bit and and have looked at it, I wonder if you've thought sufficiently really about three questions. Here, Here are the three questions I wonder if you've thought sufficiently about. I know that I don't think sufficiently about it. That's why I'm asking you if you have. First question, why do we need a high priest? Now notice my language there. I didn't say, why do we receive a high priest? I said, why do we need a high priest? Why is it necessary for us to have a high priest? What's wrong with us that we need a high priest? 
Second question I wonder if we think enough about. What kind of high priest does the Lord provide for us? What's the nature of a high priest? What really does a high priest do? What is a high priest like? Why was a high priest given to us? Which goes back to some degree to the first question. Third question. What does it say about God that he gives us a high priest? Maybe we haven't thought enough about that. What does it say about us that we need a high priest? What does it say about God that he gives us a high priest? So I want to look at those three questions this morning. And really, I'm going to look at those three questions while looking at Hebrews 5, 1 through 4, and just consider the Old Testament Aaronic priesthood, or the priesthood of the Levites. I just want to consider that this morning. And then really, um, from there, we are going to launch into a long meditation, really um, two and a half chapters on considering the priesthood of Christ. And then another couple chapters on the sacrifice of Christ. And so we're going to spend a lot of time on these questions. But this morning, I want to spend time on those three questions as we look at the Old Testament priesthood as laid out here in Hebrews 5. You say, the Old Testament priesthood is laid out in the New Testament? Yes. We're getting some information about the Old Testament Levitical priesthood or Aaronic priesthood here in Hebrews 5. So let's start with the first question. Why do we need a high priest? Why do we need one? Look at Hebrews 5.1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now notice this. Note first that the high priest is chosen by God to act on whose behalf? On behalf of men. In relation to who? In relation to God. So the high priest is acting on our behalf in relation to God. And what is he doing in re- on our behalf in relation to God? He is offering gifts and sacrifices. For what? What's he offering gifts and sacrifices for? Sins. So, so notice what he's saying here and what's all assumed here. You need a high priest because you're a sinner. You need someone that God has appointed to act between you and God on your behalf to go to God and offer sacrifices and offerings for your sins. You need that. Now, now look at why we need that a bit more. Look at Hebrews 5, 2, just to fill out what he means by sins. <clears throat> Verse 2, he can deal, he, that being the priest, whatever priest is appointed by God, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Notice that language. The old covenant priest, and and this will be true, we'll find next week, the new covenant priest, um, that being Jesus Christ, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Now, the ignorant and wayward are actually two different words that are ways of describing sin. In other words, we're sinners. It's not just that we do sin. It's that we are sinners. We're fallen, corrupt in Adam, guilty in Adam. And so it's not just that um, sin is some act that we commit that's outside of us, like, you know, I commit some particular sin, and someone says, that was a pretty heinous sin. And my response, if, if you pay much attention to what people often say today, is, well, that's not really me. I'm not the kind of person who does that. Well, folks, I have news for you. The kind of person who does that is the kind of person who does that. If you did it, you're precisely the kind of person who does that. And someone else didn't do it for you. That is you. You're the one who did it. You're the kind of person who does that. You're a sinner. And our sin is described as being ignorant 
and wayward. Two different descriptions there. So what is meant by these two terms? He's really talking about two ways of coming at describing our sin. Sins committed in ignorance and sins committed by the wayward. Now, what does he mean? Let's take on the sins of the ignorant first. Let me deal with this question of ignorance. When he says, for he, he can deal gently with the ignorant, the ignorant is this word to be without knowledge. That's literally what it is. You take the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis, and you just tag on an A, which, you know, the alpha primitive, which negates the knowledge. You have no knowledge. You're without knowledge. Now, the point is not that you are completely unaware of what is right and wrong. That's not the point he's making. When he says, there are sins of the ignorant, you're ignorant. He doesn't mean you're completely unaware of what's right and wrong. Do you know you're born a theist? It takes a lot of education to convince you otherwise. You know who God is. You're born with a conscience. In other words, what is a conscience? Con, with science, knowledge. You don't think about science as knowledge. But you're born with knowledge, a conscience. What kind of science do you know? You have knowledge, you're born with knowledge of the moral law of God. You know what's right and what's wrong. You're born knowing that some beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors are true, good, and beautiful, and others are false, evil, and ugly. The point Hebrews is making with ignorance is that your hearts and minds, when he says that, is that your hearts and minds have been darkened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's not that you never knew the truth in any sense whatsoever, or that you have no conscience that makes you aware that you're violating God's moral law, or that you deserve death for doing so. Just go read Romans 1, 18-32. You clearly have that kind of knowledge. It is that you have been darkened by the deceitfulness of sin. Due to the fall of Adam, we're all conceived in sin. We are, as Paul says, and, and pardon the very kind of crass term, we are spiritually stillborn. We're born dead in sin with minds that are corrupted and hearts that are, um, as Luther said, curved in on themselves. Thus man is also born in a kind of ignorance. This is a kind of ignorance. We're born with such perverse hearts that we are self-deceived. That's why Ezekiel can say something like, the heart of man is wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? You hear that? You can't even know the depths of your own sin. You're so self-deceived. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying when he says you're ignorant. Now, believers, I want you to hear this. If you're someone who's been born again, saved by the Lord, and your mind has been enlightened, if you will, to the truth, even after you've been born again, born again, your mind is still not enlightened to the degree that it ought to be. Darkness still remains in you. Even as born-again believers, you still fight against the corruption of the flesh. And thus, you still often sin in ignorance. That's why Paul is after you in Romans 12.1, or excuse me, Romans 12.2, to renew your mind. He's speaking to believers there. Renew your mind. That's why the psalmist speaking to believers is telling you to guard your hearts. That's why Paul, when he's praying for the church at Ephesus and Ephesians 1, he prays that they would be even more enlightened than they already are. My point is that ignorance is not so much about your lack of knowledge of facts with regard to what is good and evil. My point is that ignorance is about your own darkened minds and self-deceit that leads you into sin that you may know is wrong. You might know it's wrong, and yet the ignorance, the darkness that remains in you leads you down that road. Ignorance is sort of a way of talking about self-deceit, isn't it? The deceitfulness of sin. That confuses you, and, and as I often say, is sin causing you to be insane leads to a kind of insanity. 
You might wonder how this is possible, but keep your hand in in Hebrews 5 and look at Romans 7. Romans 7 and verse 14. Paul speaking here as a believer and this battle that rages within the believer. Romans 7, 14, he says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not, verse 15, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You guys experience that? Delight in the law in my inner being, and yet evil lies close at hand. The very thing I want to do, I don't do, and the very thing I hate, I end up doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body? Death. That's what he's talking about, the ignorance of sin. That's why we need a high priest. Here's question, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm in a war, and I'm getting my tail kicked Seemingly on a daily basis, who will deliver me? Even when you think you're doing well, evil lies close at hand. Close at hand. It'll crop up just in the self-assuredness and pride that starts to build because you're doing well. And the sense that I'm okay if I'm out of the word. I'm okay if I'm away from the gathered church. I'm okay if I don't pray much. I'm doing well right now. Man, I'm so much in it. I don't need brothers in my life or sisters in my life telling me the truth. I'm doing really well. Watch out. I mean, you are a moment's notice. A hair away from falling headlong into the sin you hate. That's why we need a high priest. We're sinners and we don't understand our own actions. We don't understand our own hearts. Second reason, or second thing he says here about sin, second type of sin he talks about in Hebrews 5. He says, not only are we ignorant, in other words, he can deal gently with the ignorant. He says, and the wayward. Let me deal with that word, wayward. There are those who have wandered away from the Lord. The wayward is this word that they are off the way. They're off the path. They've gone astray. They've been deceived by temptation to wander from the ways of God. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. This word will be used there. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7. And specifically the word will pop up in verse 10. But look at verse 7. As he's warning the church. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. He's talking about Israel in the wilderness under Moses after the Exodus. And he says this, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray. They wander. They go wayward in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. To go wayward is to pursue your own way, to harden your heart, to 
ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit as he says, don't, don't take another step on that path. Don't do it. Don't take another step on that path. And you step anyway. You step anyway. And you take a detour off of the king's highway to heaven and onto a path that leads to destruction. That's what it means to be wayward. They are those of whom Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Now, friends, this kind of sin can also befall true Christians, can't it? It can befall us. We can wander away and go astray for a season. If that were not the case, if that were not the case, if we were not able to wander away and go astray for a season, then the biblical commands given to us for church discipline would not have included instructions for restoring the brother who wanders away from the truth. What, what sense does Galatians 6.1 make? What sense does Second Thess- or, excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter 2 make? Or 1 Corinthians 5 make? If believers can't also go wayward, because all of those texts are calling us to restore those who've gone wayward. But we're to restore the repentant brother in a spirit of gentleness. Not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Knowing that such temptation could easily overcome us as well. Every moment, please hear this, every moment of spiritual perseverance that you experience is a gift of God's grace. It's a gift of God's grace. If left to yourself, you will wander. You will wander. That's why we can all sing, and we all know it as we sing it, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And that's why we must sing, here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We need him to keep us. It's not just we want him to keep us. We need him to keep us. So we know we're all sinners. We know we all violate God's law. We know we are all ignorant and wayward. And this leads to the main question I'm asking in this first point. Why do we need a high priest to offer gifts and sacrifices? Why do we need that? And the answer is simple. God is holy And we are not. Did you catch that? It's that simple. God is holy. And we are not. And God will not abide sin. No sinner can come before him in his presence. Not one. God is righteous. Now please hear this. The Old Testament is clear about this. God will not justify the wicked. In fact... God hates those who justify the wicked. God hates sin. And according to Psalm 5.5, he hates sinners. He doesn't just cast your sin into hell. He casts you there. God punishes sin. The wages of sin is death. As a rebellious sinner, you are separated from God. You are justly condemned to eternal, conscious torment in hell you're an enemy of god i don't deliver that to you as good news that is horrific news to deliver to you that's horrific news for me to take in myself i don't like to believe one word of that i like to think i'm pretty worth saving i'm not so bad Hey, I mean, I can find the temptation to start to find my way to, well, my good works kind of outweigh my bad too. 
that's because I have too low a view of God and too high a view of myself. That's why we need a priest. That's why we need a mediator. We need someone to go between us and God. We need someone to stand between us and the righteous wrath of God against us and our sins. We need someone to atone for our sins. We need our sin to be paid for in full. If God will not justify the wicked, and we are the wicked, then we need someone to save us from God's just just wrath. We need someone to justify us. How does that even happen? Look, when God dwelled in the tabernacle at the end of Exodus, if you remember, they... God had given them instructions under the Mosaic Covenant, that covenant made with Moses, which is really a national um, covenant for the people of Israel, a temporary covenant that's put in place until the heir, the son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, comes that governs the people of Israel um, in the Old Covenant. That covenant, when God put that in place, he not only gave them a law, he gave them a instructions for a tabernacle, a priesthood, and a sacrificial system because precisely because he knew they would violate the law he gave them. And so he gave them all this and they built the tabernacle. God said, I'll dwell in the tabernacle. And so they built the tabernacle. You get to the end of Exodus. The tabernacle is constructed and God's glory comes down and fills the tabernacle, and God now dwells in the tabernacle, and you're left with, at the end of the book of Exodus, with a massive problem. The holiest man in Israel, Moses, can't go into the tabernacle where God dwells, nor can any of the people. Moses, if you will, in writing Exodus, leaves you with a tremendous problem. God now dwells in his tabernacle, and none of us can approach him. Not even Moses. And the answer to that is the book of Leviticus. That's why you're given it. Well, here's a priest, Aaron, and here's a sacrificial system to deal with that sin that keeps you from his presence. Thus, God gave them a high priest. God gave them atoning sacrifice. God was propitiated when the high priest brought those sacrifices before him. His wrath was satisfied. That's what the whole Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, is all about. Now, I want to be clear, as we will look at this more over the next several weeks, these Old Covenant sacrifices in and of themselves could not propitiate, atone, satisfy God's wrath. They couldn't do it. But these Old Covenant sacrifices pointed to the one who can. They pointed to the one who can. Here's the point I'm trying to make. We need a mediator who can bring atoning sacrifices before the Lord if we have any hope of reconciliation with God. Any. The high priest came before God on behalf of the people to offer atonement for sin so that they could be cleansed, forgiven, redeemed, and reconciled, put back into right relationship with God. He came before God on their behalf so that they could come before God. So due to our sin and God's holiness, we need a high priest to offer atoning sacrifices. Now let me turn to the second question. What is the high priest who's given to us like? What's he like? What's required of a high priest? What is his nature, if you will, and his office? What is the priest whom God has given us like? First point I want to make about this priest, I want to make four quick points about him. First one, he's human. The high priest must be human. Look at Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men. He is chosen from among men. It is not the angels whom he helps. He is not an angel. He is a human. The high priest must be a human. He must be a human to be our representative. Only a man can represent men before God. 
He must be one of us to stand before God for us. This is why we'll see when we come into the following passage that it is so absolutely necessary that the church has and always should, always has and always should confess that Jesus Christ is truly man. With a rational soul and body. He is nothing less than that. He must be human to be our representative. He must be one of us to stand before God for us. God appointed Aaron in the Old Covenant to be the high priest. He didn't appoint an angel in the, in the Old Covenant to be a high priest. Angels were active in the Old Covenant. They are at Mount Sinai as mediators, if you will, delivering the law to Moses. Paul tells us that in Galatians 3 quite clearly. But God did not appoint an angel to be the high priest. God appointed a man, Aaron. So he must be a man or human. That's the first point. Second, the priest must be gentle. Or maybe a better even word than gentle is he must be compassionate. And I'll explain why. Look at verse 2 of Hebrews 5. He, that priest that's appointed by God, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, I'm going to look at part of this phrase um, next week, but I just want to get at it here right now. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. So he must be a human. He must be gentle. Or maybe the better word is compassionate. This, this phrase, he can deal gently, um, is taken from the Greek term, he is not apathetic. Okay? Um, this Greek term that's basically saying he is, he is of like passion with you. Right? He's not apathetic to you. He's not uncaring. He's not impatient. He does not look at the weak and the ignorant and wayward people and become outraged with anger and attack them because he himself is beset with weakness. So he has compassion. That word compassion, again, those first three letters, C-O-M, is pointing to the Latin word for um, with and the second word passion he, he's, he comes at you with passion. Now, that's not like, I feel so passionate about you. That's not what I mean, right? He's, I is, he has like passions with you. In other words, he, this human high priest, he empathizes with you. He feels, if you will, what you're feeling. He sees the lost sheep, helpless and harassed, like sheep without a shepherd. And he doesn't say, those sinners serves you right. He has compassion on them. In other words, the high priest is in that sense a good shepherd. He's a good shepherd. He does not look at the wayward sheep and think, wicked sinners, why didn't you get your act together? Why didn't you wise up, you fools? Clean up your mess. If you'd only been like me, I know how to keep my stuff together. He looks at them and thinks, I feel for them. I must save them. I've got to rescue them. Third, not only is he human and compassionate, he is mediatorial. This is a terrible word, by the way, for what I'm trying, the point I'm trying to make, but I couldn't think of a better adjective to say it. So I was trying hard to find a better adjective. I even asked some smarter people than me. Um, yes, high school students who I asked, you're smarter than me. And I couldn't, I couldn't come up with a good word. So here, here's what I have. He's mediatorial. That's what I'm going to go with. What do I mean? The priest is one who is committed to act on behalf of men before God. He's committed. I'm saying something more than just that he does act on behalf of men before God. I'm saying he is committed to act on behalf of men before God. Look at verse 3. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. That's going to speak of the priest or the Aaronic priesthood. They're all sinners. Next week, I'll show you how Jesus is different than that. He's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. 
just as he does for those of the people. He offers sacrifices for them. Look at verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to, be- to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. In other words, <clears throat> he bears the burdens and the sins of others before the Lord. He bears their burdens, if you will, carrying them on his shoulders. He sees you. Do you know that? If I come to Christ as the ultimate high priest, he sees you. And he carries you on his shoulders with all your sins and sorrows. He has you on his heart. What's he saying about the priest in the Old Testament? He bears your burdens and your sorrows and he has you on his heart. He loves you and bears you up before the Lord. Look at Exodus 28. Keep your hands there in Hebrews 5 and turn back to Exodus 28. We're going to take a minute to look at clothing. It's not because I'm somebody who loves style and fashion. That isn't the case. As you're all aware, I have a limited number of outfits. I prefer to recycle to my wife's chagrin. But, you know, you're married 25 years, and you realize you're not going to change the other person, and you move on, right? So when you're young and married, you don't quite get that, and so you're always angsty. But you'll get over it soon enough. Exodus chapter 28. Let's look at the clothing of the priesthood there. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with you. That's verse 1. And his sons with you from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar. By the way, if you know who Nadab and Abihu are, you recognize that these priests are not being chosen because they're godly men um, in and of themselves here. But they're chosen. Now look at verse 2. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So he's going to get to the garments that the high priest wears. I want to look at two aspects of these garments. You might say why, but you'll see why in a second. Look down at verse 7. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together, and the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it and be of one piece with it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on those two onyx stones or on them the name of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. Now look at verse 12. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So part of the high priest's clothing is to bear the people of Israel on his shoulders, to carry them before the Lord and their sins and burdens. Now look down. It goes on, verse 15. You shall make a breast piece of judgment and skilled work in the style of the ephod. You shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. You shall make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set it in four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. The second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name, for the twelve tribes. Now drop down to verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel and the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. I don't know if you stop and consider the clothing, but this is an incredibly breathtaking picture. Here the high priest takes the names of the tribes of the people and bears them on his shoulder. He takes the names of the tribes of the people and he bears them on his heart. And he goes before the Lord, always bearing 
the burdens and sorrows and sins of the people with them on his heart and carrying them on his shoulder before the Lord. So the priest is to bear the people on his shoulders and his heart before the Lord. The high priest is a human representative. He is gentle, kind, caring, compassionate. He is one who seeks the lost like a shepherd. He is committed to mediating before you, bearing the people of God on his shoulders and on his heart. And finally, he is humble. He is humble. Look at verse 4 of Hebrews 5. Turn back there and look at verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. He is humble. He does not take the honor for himself. He is appointed and called by God. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed, appointed by God. He doesn't take this honor on himself. He's called by God, just as Aaron was. He does not presume to himself the honor of being the high priest, the mediator. God bestows that upon him. The Lord did this in the case of Aaron and his sons. Aaron and his sons did not earn the calling of the high priest. You heard two of them were named Nadab and Abihu. Just go read Leviticus 10 and find out why that's not a great thing for them. But they were set apart for that. The high priest knows who he appointed call who who was appointed excuse me by whom he was appointed called and sent. The high priest knows that. He does the bidding of the Lord. He does not seek his own glory but the glory of God. Now no high priest of the old covenant. Please hear this. No high priest of the old covenant was ever the kind of high priest we find in Jesus. Ever. And that is the thrust of this whole section of the book of Hebrews. As gloriously good as that description of the high priest is in the old covenant. Folks, everything I described to you is supposed to be true of an old covenant high priest. As gloriously true as that was. As good and benevolent and gracious as that seemed to the people of Israel. No high priest of the old covenant was ever the kind of high priest we find in Jesus. So next week, we'll really look at the contrast between Jesus as a high priest and the similarities between Jesus as a high priest with the old covenant priest because he both contrasts with them and is similar to them. And his contrasts with them are what make him so much better than them. That's the whole thrust of this section. Every other Old Testament priest just pointed forward to Jesus. They were types and shadows. He is the antitype, the fulfillment, the substance. They were good gifts of God. He is an infinitely better gift of God. Look at Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 really briefly. I want you to see how this whole section is bracketed before I conclude this point. Verses, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 form an inclusio or bracket around this entire section with chapters 10, 19 through 25. But I just want you to see this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now keep your hand there and look to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. He's making this point about this high priest we have in Jesus who is better than the old covenant high priest, this sacrifice and covenant we have in Jesus that's all better than the old covenant and sacrifices. And look what he says again, verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, you hear that confidence word come up again? To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, 
by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest or great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, all of Hebrews 5, 1 through ten eighteen is bracketed with this Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, and Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. And it's telling you that everything in here has to do with the fact that Jesus is the better high priest. He's the heavenly one who came here and carries us before the throne of grace. He is the infinitely better high priest, not earthly, but heavenly. Not sinful, but holy. He is the one who offers a sacrifice, not that's temporary, but that's infinite and eternal. The Old Testament priests, the Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Covenant are all being compared with Jesus Christ, the better priest, the better sacrifice, the better giver of a better covenant. Now we'll spend lots of time on that the next, I don't know how many weeks, however long you think it might take me to get through chapter 10. But let me conclude with a third question. It's just really a quick point. Third question I asked at the beginning. What does it tell us about God that he would give such a high priest? What does it tell us about him that he would give us such a high priest? Well, first, it minimally tells us, maybe first and up front, that God is holy and can't be approached by sinners. God is holy and can't be approached by sinners. It was the fall of man and his sin that made the priesthood necessary. Folks, it's the fall of man and his sin that makes the cross necessary. You know what the cross tells you? It tells you that God can't be in relationship with you apart from atonement. Apart from his wrath being poured out justly. If that's not true, then the cross is just an exercise in futility and a waste of time to talk about. It tells you that. God can't relate to you because of your sin. Apart from atonement. So that's the first thing we learn in the necessity of a priesthood. But secondly, we learn that God is loving. Now please hear this. And seeks to save us. It is the love and grace of God that made the priesthood something God appointed. Listen, it is the holiness and justice of God that makes the priesthood necessary for us. It is the love and grace of God that makes the priesthood something He gave us. The cross tells us our need for atonement. And the cross simultaneously tells us God's willingness, his love for us, in making atonement for us. It sings of both his love and justice simultaneously. That you are so sinful and he is so holy that he cannot relate to you, but that he is so loving and gracious that he will crush his own son to relate to you, to save you. To bring you forgiveness of sins. We didn't do anything to deserve any of that. We didn't plan the cross. We didn't send the Messiah. We didn't ask for him. We sinned. We rebelled. We looked away from God. We chased after idols. We reveled in our ignorance. And all us, like sheep, went astray. Pursuing our own way. And God, in his love for us, chased us down, pursued us. I just don't think we meditate enough upon that. I say it's because I want us to meditate on the love of God here. Here in his love, not that we first loved God, 
but that he first loved us and gave his son as a propitiation, a wrath bearer, a satisfier of wrath for our sins. He is the father of the prodigal son, who after much ignorance and sin and waywardness, upon seeing that prodigal son approaching, ran to greet him and kiss him and put robes on him and throw a party to have him around. He is the husband of the wayward wife who went out searching for her, like Hosea went out searching for Gomer. He is the God who sent his beloved son for rebellious sinners like us. He is the God who sent the Holy Spirit to give you life and faith so that you might be forgiven for your sins, declared righteous, and adopted as sons. Do you know him? Do you trust him? Do you meditate enough? Just asking the question, what manner of love is this that we should be called children of God? And so we are. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Amen. Father, we ask that we would rejoice in the grace that we have been shown that we would be thankful for the love displayed in Christ and his cross. That we would wonder at at what manner of love is this. That though enemies justly condemned out of your great love for us, you pursued us and saved us in your son. We pray for those who don't know you, who aren't looking to Jesus, that your spirit would give them eyes to see and ears to hear, and they would be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.